Hi, I'm Don Braid, columnist with The Herald. I'm with uh, Chris Varco, business political columnist. And this is inside Alberta. Well, it's a very, very different Alberta today. This is an Alberta completely dominated by the United Conservative Party after a smashing victory for Jason Kenney and his group and the virtual isolation of uh, the NDP in Fortress, Alberta, with compared to the uh, UCP representation, a, a quite a small, solid but small opposition. Uh, Chris, what do you take as the, the fundamental message or things we should take away from this uh, surprising victory, bigger than we thought it would be? Certainly was bigger than I think most people yeah. were predicting initially. 63 seats for the UCP at this point in time, mm-hmm. pending some recounts and some looking at some of the ballots. 24 for the NDP. I mean, compare the election map four years ago that looked like a checkerboard of of various colors. Now it's basically blue everywhere (laughs) other than three seats in Calgary, uh, one seat down in uh, Lethbridge West, at least at this stage of the game, and then an entire sea of orange in Edmonton other than one little tiny sliver of blue inside the capital city. Uh, So what does that tell us, Don? I think my, my sense is that it tells us that the UCP understood the mood in this province, which was anger, anxiety, frustration, they're worried about jobs, they're worried about pipelines, they're worried about the economy. And Jason Kenney understood what that was, he channeled that message, and he stuck to it, regardless of what other headwinds were sort of blowing into his campaign. Well, he, he, always, he always said, didn't he, that these were the real issues. And sometimes he could be quite disdainful when people talked about social issues. Now, I, I didn't like that, because the social issues are really important to a lot of people, and they should be part of all this. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that he, that pickup truck, you know, people kind of joke about it, but that pickup truck did him a lot of good, because he was out there for months and months talking to people. There's no question question he talked to thousands of people so when he said he had some understanding of what people were thinking in this province he was really he was correct about the majority view in the province i guess the next question is going to be what he does with that overwhelming mandate let's talk a little bit before we jump ahead to what's going going forward about the NDP and Rachel Notley, Don, I thought that there was a failure in her campaign to ever pivot away from the negative message, that they never talked or they didn't talk enough about their plans for the economy, their plans, you know, their their program on daycare, which really was a, a signature piece, yeah. which really did, got very little mm-hmm. attention. It, they didn't seem like they were offering much reason to vote for them other than don't vote for that guy. Yeah. What do you think about well, how they I, campaigned? This is uh, uh, something that they've all, they've always been like this. Since, since their very first time, the day they were elected almost, they make decisions and they stick to them. I mean, look at Notley's cabinet, for instance. She never changed her cabinet at all. Joe Cece, Mark McCaig, Boyd, Sarah Hoppen, in the same jobs for four years. That's kind of rare. And and policy stuff they, they simply wouldn't back up on. They decided on this election strategy at the very beginning, and they didn't pivot. They decided that they, they knew that the, the combined conservative vote was going to be very difficult to overcome, and they knew that they thought that the only way to defeat that natural majority, if you like, was to take down the leader, Jason Kenney, hence the attacks. And the consequence of that, which I don't think they intended, was that Notley's whole economic message got blurred. She didn't talk that much about the the hospital, about the go-ahead on the ring road for Calgary. There was lots of stuff she could have talked about more in Calgary specifically. And but and she did, to an extent, talk about those things, but they, it all got blurred by the negative message because they were pumping out constant uh, emails and notifications and alerts and alarms and excursions about the latest candidate that they had discovered. Now, Kenny always said that that is a minor concern for people, and it made him sound dismissive about the issues themselves, but politically he was right. 
The other thing is, and, you know, I was talking to David Terrace, the political analyst who we both know and who understands the landscape in this province as well as anybody, and he said, you know, they didn't need to go negative all mm. the time. Yeah. Those negative issues were already out there. They would have taken care of themselves, whether yeah. it was the police investigations that, that people were talking about or the negative comments on social issues from his candidates. They didn't have to focus on that to the exclusion of everything else. And it really, as you say, seemed to obscure any of the positivity yeah. in their uh, election campaign. And you know, it, it was a counter message for Notley herself because the the general impression is that Notley is pretty popular. She's a likable person. She's funny. Uh, even her her speech last night, where uh, after the election, she showed her qualities. Like she's got those qualities. But then all of a sudden, you've got the same group of people doing all this stuff that seemed so negative. You know, a great many people agreed that those things should come out and love the NDP. Let's let's be clear, NDP loyalists like those messages coming out the way they did. But I don't think they helped her because they were in a sense counter her persona. It made her raise the question about whether she's really that nice, right? So she had the great, she had a great line uh, to open up her speech, I thought, where she said, it's night like, it's night like tonight, which is why we expanded the craft beer industry yeah, in this that province. Was, that was pretty good. It's a classic Notley line. <laughs> I yeah. thought it was a great line. I think also the, the line that Jason Kenney had about Alberta is no longer going to be the pushover, that it's yeah. now about the fight back. I mean, I think that's a line that people are going to remember for a while. Yeah, that's for sure. So let's have a look at uh, some of the results. Uh, um, Edmonton and Calgary in particular, I thought Edmonton was fascinating. You know, it was a school of thought, even in UCP circles, that if, if Kenny hadn't raised that issue of GSAs and said he was going to enact the old education bill during the election, they might have won a few seats in Edmonton. Uh, it's possible, but Edmonton is a solid phalanx, except for our, our former journalistic colleague, John Archer, who lost one uh, suburban ride in yeah. Edmonton Southwest. Um, it's a solid phalanx. Now, the, the reasons for that are, I think there's a couple of reasons. One of them is there is an ideological difference. Edmonton is definitely more, quote, liberal than, than Calgary and other parts of the province. But I think the main reason is economic. Um, Edmonton has benefited from a lot of government spending. There's a huge refinery being built there now, mm-hmm. which is generating a lot of jobs. The unemployment rate has always been lower in Edmonton than it is in Calgary through this whole period since 2014. So so uh, there there was almost an economic rationale for voting for Notley and Edmonton that simply didn't exist anywhere else. And now we've got this strange, well, it's not unknown, <laughs> you know, Calgary premiers ran, have run this place for a long part, right. a lot of the time since 1971. Um, and that's where we are again. But the the divide now is, is really sharply split because I think it was back when Two years after Grant Notley died and the NDP won 16 seats in Edmonton, right. I think that was the closest they've come to this kind of domination, apart from 2015, of course. What's really striking when you look at the numbers, Don, is how Calgary and Edmonton are basically an inverse, you know, almost like a mirror-type yeah. situation. That Look at the popular vote. In Edmonton, the NDP took 52%. The UCP took 35%. Yeah. In Calgary, the numbers are flipped. The UCP took 53%. The NDP took 34%. As you pointed out, only one UCP seat in Edmonton. In mm-hmm. Calgary, right now we're sitting with three mm-hmm. NDP seats and with maybe the potential of two others in Calgary Varsity and Calgary Curry, that being Brian Malkinson, the cabinet minister's riding, maybe yeah. still being in play. But basically, it's 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 a sea of blue. We, yeah, we've still got those 230,000 uh, votes that were cast outside of ridings in advanced polling. 
that may have some impact. Uh, you know, that, that may shift. It's possible the UCP might go under 60 and the NDP might come up a bit. And uh, But I, frankly, I was kind of surprised that the NDP did that well. Now, Joe Cece uh, in Buffalo, you know, a popular guy. He's just Joe's a nice guy, and he's well-known by lots of individuals in the in the riding. Kathleen Ganley, of course, won in varsity, which is an eternal opposition riding to conservatism in, in, in Calgary. Uh, but it, really, it doesn't matter, does it? Because, uh, you know, we'll talk a bit about... Uh, uh, rural Alberta and the small cities as well now, because the the w- w- margins in rural Alberta, just some of them are just overwhelming, like 10,000 vote margins and huge voter turnout of over, se- they could be over 70% in some of these areas. The, the, the vote tallies in some of the seats where cabinet ministers, and I'm thinking now O'Neill Carler or Marg McQuaig Boyd, uh, they got just Hammered. completely crushed yeah. by, by the UCP tide. I mean, there was only one seat in the small cities, and that is down in Lethbridge West, right? right, right. Where yeah. Shannon Phillips won, a, you know, a pretty tight victory, uh, pending, I guess, whatever happens in terms of the additional ballots being counted. Yeah. But I mean, they're nowhere on the map in, in most of rural Alberta. You know, the the NDP was it was kind of a funny anomaly of the 15 election. It was surprising to see the NDP win two seats in Lethbridge, uh, Medicine Hat, two seats in Red Deer. And the NDP realized that they had to retain a portion of that. They had to get maybe five of those, retain maybe five of those seats. And the fact that only Shannon Phillips won, and she got a landslide in 2015 and a very small margin this time around. So that, that, I mean, the map of Alberta is really quite remarkable. It's just about solid blue except for that little dot in uh, the Calgary, the Edmonton dot, we can call it. (laughs) So, so yeah, and and I think if we go back to why... um, Rural Alberta turned so hostile. I think we can start with Bill 6. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's probably ultimately a pretty good bill and not that damaging a bill, but but they got it so wrong right off the get-go that they convinced the, a, a population that was already kind of dubious about the NDP was convinced very quickly that the NDP was against them and didn't consult. And I still remember the episode where they had to send out officials to a, a meeting that had just gotten right out of control. Yep. But the problem was, this is what we talked about, about them not being very flexible and changing course. They weren't weren't even ready. They could barely find the washrooms in the legislature when they brought down Bill 6. They still weren't really into or, or adapted to governing. And then they threw out this big bill that's so important to them for, for some reason, I think. And it just cause political damage in rural Alberta that they never quite recovered from. And the carbon tax, I think, was, you know, as if there was any other reasons why you, you know, if you were living in rural Alberta that you might have been upset, the carbon tax was another, uh, I think, clincher. Don, let's talk a little bit about the the third parties. What would... When we were talking about those vote tallies in Calgary and in Edmonton, it's remarkable as the Alberta Party got 10% in both cities, and that yeah. translated into nothing. Zero, we yeah. saw, you know, Greg Clark uh, lose in what was a, you know, a somewhat tight race in Calgary Albo. We saw uh, Stephen Mandel, the leader, you know, wasn't really in that race at all. That's a party with 10% of the vote and no seats. Yeah. What does that tell us about how well they campaigned <laughs> and how well they executed well, they, on their strategy? Uh, they, they, when you look at all those ridings where they were com- competitive and, and also an elbow, what what really happened was the NDP and the Alberta Party split the vote, 
And, uh, you know, the, the in, in Elbow, for instance, I think the NDP probably cost Greg Clark his, his seat. And you can look at it the other way around. And there just wasn't – this is a very divisive election. It yeah. was always possible right off the top that this was – this was going to happen. Really, the only seat where you think they would have had a chance would have been Mountain View, which is always in opposition. And uh, sure enough, it went to the NDP for to Ganley, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and w- it'll be a rare legislature indeed. And you were just telling me, because I was wondering myself, that it was 1997, the last time we had a legislature divided between two parties with no independents, no small parties. The last legislature was really interesting because there was so much turmoil going on between the Alberta right. Party people who had left UCP, or not UCP, but left the NDP, and there was all these crossovers. And so the politics of the province were sort of being tumble in a tumbler on the legislature floor while people were expressing their <laughs> discontent with their old parties and crossing over. Uh, and this will be nothing like that. I, it's hard to imagine any floor crossing now because, first of all, the UCP wouldn't accept New Democrats. In fact, they say they won't accept anybody unless they run for election after going independent. And uh, you can't expect much movement toward the NDP from the <laughs> UCP know. either. The other thing that uh, that's worth pointing out, I think, is that the Liberal Party is now officially dead in this province as the Alberta Liberal Party. Uh, Mr. Kahn was not even close to being competitive in Calgary Mountain View, which was David Swan's old riding. They weren't competitive anywhere. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when Kevin Taft, you know, had won a number of seats in the 2004 campaign and they had a very strong caucus. It's been on a down on a down run ever since that. I mean, Ross Sherman taking over as a leader, and then subsequently after that, David Swan is is this party has just been on a on a steady decline to oblivion. Well, I remember in 1993 when. Uh under Lawrence Decor, the Liberals won either 32 or 35. I thought it was 35, but I might be wrong. And that was, I think, the biggest single-party opposition there's ever been in Alberta. And now, uh, well, nothing. Well, this is what happens when you've got the same name as uh, Justin Trudeau's party. Uh, they were all, always, even though they're they're organizationally separate and all that, but, right. uh, you know, there's no question that they were not going to do very well. And I don't think uh, David Kahn spent much time at all out of Calgary. There, You know, a lot of his campaign event schedules were phone calls. So he'd spend the morning, spend a couple of hours making phone calls because he didn't have, actually have an event at all. It was basically a, a non-campaign. And, and given that, you have to give the guy credit for coming across pretty as pretty spunky in the televised debate. It strikes me that if, if either of those two parties, the Alberta Party or the Liberal Party, want to survive in any form, they're going to have to merge. That you know, they've, yeah. they've talked about this over the last decade, and yeah. then the Liberals have always backed away. I don't know if there's much left to merge, but if yeah. ever that conversation takes place, you think it has to take place and in the next And then there's Derek Fildebrand's Freedom What do we say about Derek Fildebrand's party? <laughs> well, Jason Kenney didn't say it. He, he thanked, you know, he, he complimented... Uh, Mandel and Khan and Notley last night, but he didn't mention good old Derek, uh, who was uh, still out there, freedom conservating his little heart out, <laughs> without any uh, without any results last night. What did you success. think of uh, Jason Kenney's speech, uh, Don? Well, um, pugnacious, as you said earlier, is yep. exactly the description. He started off with basically issuing challenges to the rest of Canada, uh, and then rather surprisingly, but not in historic terms in Alberta, threw an olive branch at Quebec. Uh, talking directly to Premier Legault, who who also said just today, I think, yes. that uh, you know, there's we don't still accept no, your pipelines. Still no social acceptability to the pipeline uh, from Alberta to Montreal. Uh, so I'm not sure how much that's going to help. But it's not it's not unusual in in tough anti Ottawa times for 
an Alberta premier to seek some kind of general alliance and common interest with Quebec, because after all, Quebec is the same um, the same kind of concerns about uh, powers and re- keeping powers away from Ottawa, and that's exactly what Kenny is going to be challenging uh, over the carbon tax and so forth, right. is the extent of federal power. Uh, Lougheed, uh, Peter Lougheed, way back when, uh, had a very friendly uh, meeting with uh, uh, René Levesque after he'd been elected as a separatist, and he came here. Big national hoo-ha over uh, Alberta Premier uh, being friendly with Levesque, and they really were friendly. So, but the the speech itself was covered a lot of ground. It was a long thirty-minute speech. Minute speech yes. What did you What did you make of it? Uh, you know, I, I agree with you. I was amazed that he stayed on the you know the Alberta, the the track of Alberta fighting back for so mm-hmm. long. I mean, he talked about you know fighting on Bill C sixty nine on equalization on the tanker ban legislation on foreign funding of anti oil sands groups. Um, you know, he definitely threw down the gauntlet that, you know, Alberta is going to fight back. There was, as you say, a few olive branches at the end. Um, But it made me wonder one thing once it was all over, which is we've now seen Jason Kenney as the unifier of the conservative parties. We've seen him as a federal cabinet minister. We've seen him as the fighter, you know, uh, who's going to stand up against Ottawa. But now we're going to have to see him pivot to being Jason Kenney, the negotiator, and Jason Kenney, the leader, because the things that Alberta needs in the next few months are pipelines and economic activity. And you're going to have to play uh, with other provincial and federal governments to make that happen. The cards on Trans Mountain sit within the hand of the federal government right now. They own the project. They will make the decision on when or if that project gets approved and the construction begins. Um, So he's going to have to figure out how to negotiate either that or he's going to have to go to the barricades, to the ramparts, to to the courts and force them to do something. I just think at some point, he's going to have to pivot, and I and I and I'm I'm sure, being a veteran politician, that he knows that. Well, I'm I'm just wondering if if there's going to be any negotiation at all before the federal election, because we know what his goal in the federal election is, because right. he says it almost every day. He wants to beat Justin Trudeau. So uh, here's a here's a suggestion he may not like at all. But but does he really want a pipeline approved in May, which is supposed to be when the feds approve it? Uh, he can say, hey, I got a pipeline. It only took a month. Uh, and 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 Trudeau can say yes, there is a pipeline. So he's he's wrong about all these things he said. So so the pipeline itself becomes a funny little thing. And there's a crucial point, which is the hundred megaton cap on oil sands. Absolutely, emission. that's his card. That's his that, that's his right. negotiating card. And I think if he's yeah. if he really wants to get a pipeline done. I know that he said, Mr. Kenny has said that he's going to rip up that 100 megaton cap. And I know that that sends a message in, in his mind that we're open for business to the rest of the world. But the fact of the matter is, is that the major oil sands players are in favor or I don't have a problem with it. The industry knows that they probably can stay yeah. underneath the cap through innovation. So why give away a bargaining chip for nothing? If I were Mr. Kenny, I would turn around and say to Ottawa, you need the megaton cap, the 100 megaton cap to meet your Paris commitments. We need Trans Mountain to be approved and we need some changes, some substantive changes to C69. I think that's where there may be some discussion, yeah. but we'll find out. Well, we could, it, we'll see whether that's public or private. I, I have trouble imagining Kenny engaging in private conversations with Trudeau. Even if that even came out, he'd be seen as uh, kind of turning back on his own word. And uh, it kind of looks as if the feds have the hammer with this 100 megaton thing because they can say, well, the whole thing is off 
for now because of this 100 megaton thing, but Kenny, Kenny can actually use it to get what he wants because it really is important to the feds because if they are going to go through the pipeline, their environmental base and all the folks in midtown Toronto and everything, the people who are really not that in favor of the pipeline, uh, if the 100 megaton cap disappears and the pipeline goes ahead, there's a real political problem there for Trudeau. And, and, and Mr. Kenny has no wiggle room on the carbon tax, nor does he want any wiggle room, right? Mm-hmm. He's declared where he's going to go. I, I think the emissions cap is probably the yeah. fulcrum, at least to have those conversations. So, Don, what is next for Mr. Kennedy? We've talked about the TMX file, obviously. He's got to put together a cabinet and get the ledge session going and put a budget together. But are there, is there anything else that you think he has to deal with immediately? And also, conversely, that Rachel Notley and the NDP have to deal with? Well, of course, once he's right now, he's dealing with uh, with his transition. And, and as we speak, and we're speaking on Friday morning, uh, people are hearing about their jobs. Be- it's Wednesday morning, but we, yes, I know what you mean. Wednesday morning. I'm <laughs> sorry. What month is it again? I, I've forgotten. Um, they're, they're find, people are finding out about their jobs even today. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of staffing. We're probably not going to hear all that much, would be my guess, for a couple of weeks because uh, they have to go through the transition. David Legg is uh, is their transition boss for Notley, for uh, Kenny, rather, right. an old friend of his who came back from abroad to work with them since November. Uh, and so that'll be that'll take up a lot of time for the next little while. But of course, the first thing they'll do once they're sworn in is he says within an hour he's going to proclaim the, uh, the cut off, turn off the TAPS legislation to BC. Right. Um, making the cabinet, putting a budget together. I mean, of course, there's cabinet. a lot of things. And then, of course, lurking in the background are those energy issues that we talked about. What about Rachel Notley? It strikes me that I, I was surprised that she said so definitively, I guess if you can say anything is definitive in politics, that she's going to hang around to be the opposition leader. Do you think that that is, you know, where her head is? Or do you think that's just something that all politicians say and then, you know, six months or a year later, they've decided to move on to other well, things. she didn't do what Jim Prentice did, which was quit cold the night of the election. Right. And, uh, and you know, when you saw her with her people uh, when she was doing her speech, she, she's obviously surrounded by a lot of affection, a lot of people who really care about her and care about the party. Uh, if she doesn't stay, the NDP as an opposition will just, just dissolve because she's the leader and, and uh, everything that they got over the last four years she brought to them really as the right. leader. And that was always one of her problems was the lack of depth. But uh, there is in the heart of the NDP still a lot of feeling that's much more activist on environment and so forth than Notley's policy has been. Uh, this has always been something they've kept in the background. Notley had such authority that she was able to keep that stuff from coming out, and there is that kind of feeling in there. I'm wondering how united she will be able to keep her caucus over four years if she's opposition leader for that long, or if new Democrats are just going to start getting up in the House and saying what they really think. She's got a lot of bent strength in the sense that she can turn around and look at a lot of former cabinet ministers, whether it's Joe Cece or Catherine Ganley yeah. or Francis Beer in Calgary or, you know, David Egan, Darren Billis, I mean, Sarah Hoffman. So there is a number of people who have experience in government and in, in files, yeah. uh, which would make this a much stronger opposition party than we saw, say, eight years sure. ago or yeah. even when she first started, I think. She was in a caucus of four at that time with, with the NDP. So that'll be an interesting dynamic to watch. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, they know all the files, and they know what the UCP uh, is going to be dealing with, so they will be a good opposition. I will say, maybe say this in conclusion, it's extremely important for Alberta to have a strong opposition. To, the UCP proved that. Uh, Wild Rose proved it. The, the P, even the PCs proved it for a while. 
And now the NDP has a big block of people, more than they had at any time before the 2015 election, and they can be a really solid opposition if they can just keep their heads going in the same direction. Well, an interesting and divisive uh, polarizing election is finally over, and now we get to the business of government. That's it, and we'll talk to you next week. That's Inside Alberta.